If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to the book of James. Toward the end of the New Testament, the book of James. It is perhaps the most practical book in all of the Bible, if you could so measure it. It's like the New Testament book of Proverbs. It's matching the Old Testament book of Proverbs. It's, it's filled with pithy sayings. It's a book that gives you statements upon which you can build a life, a life that honors God, a life that is lived in wisdom. James is the half-brother of our Lord, and if you study a little bit of history about him and study what the Bible has to say, you'll find out that in his early life he didn't believe that his brother was truly the Messiah. He had a problem with that. You can almost understand it because they were siblings, but he couldn't deny there was something different about Jesus. And at some point in life he became a true believer. And after Christ died, James became a leader in the church called a pillar. He, he was one who gave stability to the young congregation and direction and helped fortify and ground believers in their faith. He was a shepherd. His little letter called James might be the very first New Testament book ever written. Some say as early as 44 AD, barely a decade after the resurrection of Jesus, his brother. And it was a time where the Jewish church was undergoing tremendous persecution. They had to flee from Jerusalem. We read about it in Acts chapter 8. It's called the diaspora, the dispersion of, of those who were believers. And James became a pastor to the people in persecution. So that's why his book is filled with so much about trials and difficulties and conflict and wars and the coming of Christ. Very practical book. James had a nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees. <laughs> now, if, among all the monikers that one could receive, that doesn't sound too good, Old Camel Knees, but it really was a good thing. He got that nickname because his knees had heavy calluses on them due to protracted times of prayer. Hmm. I can't remember the name of the one Christian who, when they died, people went to this person's bedroom, and their bedroom was a wooden floor, and by the side of the bed were two grooves where their knees had worn away the wood over the years from praying. Wow. If anyone has something to say to us about prayer, it would be someone who knew Jesus, someone who was an early leader in the church, who shepherded the people of God in that early transition time through persecution, and who himself practiced prayer as a vital part of his life. I want to hear what he has to say about prayer. And he has a lot to say. In a book of 105 verses, there are at least a dozen references to the subject of prayer. In fact, I found something amazing to me I hadn't seen before. As we go through the book of James, you'll see that he deals with the common problems that you and I face that short-circuit the power of prayer in our lives and even talks about how to correct them. 
Now, risking potential biblical overload, I still am going to risk it so that we might see kind of an overview of the theology of prayer from the book of James, in particular, the problems of prayer. First one is in chapter 1. We're told in chapter 1 that he is writing as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad because of persecution. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith will produce patience. And let patience have its maturing work, its perfecting work in your life. And when you do that, you'll be mature, not lacking anything. Verse 5, but if you do lack something, for instance, if you lack wisdom, how to handle your trials, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all he does. The first problem that James deals with is skepticism, this distrust in the character of God. For our lack of prayer either denies God's existence or ignores his goodness. Our lack of prayer shows that we don't really understand the character of God. So what James does is, first of all, he says something about us. And then secondly, he says something about God. Before thirdly, he says something about prayer. What does he say about us? Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, and you do, by the way, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Do you have any deficiencies? Well, I have a whole list of them. Yeah, you do. Be aware of that. Because that's the reason why some of you don't pray. You don't think you have any need. I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. I hope you're not saying that, because that's a quotation from the book of Revelation, where the lukewarm church of Laodicea acknowledged they didn't need God. You and I have great needs. We are inadequate. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot resist temptation. We cannot do good works. We cannot bear fruit for the glory of God without the fruit, without the work of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing, Jesus said. You and I have great needs, right? That's where prayer begins. And when you don't feel the need, you don't pray. What happens when you suddenly have a crisis? All of a sudden, you begin to pray. Now, that's okay. You should pray in a crisis, but you should pray long before a crisis. And our lack of prayer is kind of a, an acknowledgement that we really don't need God. What does it say about God? Well, in verse 5, he says, you should ask God who gives generously. Very interesting Greek word. It literally means single-minded. 
You say, well, how do you get generous out of single-minded? It's the idea that God devotes himself to you and your request as though nothing else is happening. And he wants to meet that request out of the abundance of his riches. Now, we know that God can multitask. <laughs> he can hear all the prayers of all the people at the same time, never get flustered. But when you are praying, it's as though you're the only one that's praying, and he hears that prayer, and he generously wants to respond and to bless you. And also, when you pray, here's something else that's really important about God. He won't find fault. What does that mean? <laughs> Sometimes we as parents give gifts to our kids. And as we're giving them the gift, we give them a 50-minute lecture, right? Right? And the kid goes, rolls the eyes and says, oh, here it comes. And then we remind them every week, you know, for several months about the gift we gave them. And finally, the kid just wants to say, man, I wish you never would have given me that gift. It's miserable to, to live with you constantly upbraiding me or finding fault. And God could do this. I mean, he knows all about us. But when we come to prayer, he doesn't say, boy, about time you showed up, thought you died. Been looking for you, can't find you. This better be good. You know, you haven't prayed in a long time. You know how long it's been? Doesn't do that. He's so glad that we come. Now, there's a sense of confession, and we'll get into that. But God doesn't find fault. Some of us don't come to pray because we feel it's going to be so excruciating to come. It's been a long time. God wants us to come. He doesn't have reservations. He doesn't find fault. In fact, if you go through the book of James, the character of God comes through in such beautiful ways. For instance, in verse 5 of chapter 1, he is generous in chapter 1, verse 13, he doesn't tempt us with sin, and he himself cannot be tempted with sin. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he is good, and he never changes, and he is our Savior. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's the glorious God. In chapter, nine, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, he is one. He is unified. He alone is God, and the demons even know that and tremble. From chapter 3, we learn he's creator and we are made in his image. In chapter 4, he gives grace. He is almighty in chapter 5. He's the judge. He's compassionate. He's merciful. I didn't give you time to write all of those down. You'll have to go back and read the book of James and see the character of God. That's what stands behind the invitation, come and pray. In fact, verse 5 says, you should ask God. And the end says, It'll be given to you. Because God is so amazing. But it also says something about prayer. It says something about us. We are inadequate. Something about God. He is generous. Something about prayer. You've got to pray, verse 6, and believe. When you ask, don't doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Think of a cork sitting on a wave. Tossed to and fro, up and down. Tide goes out, tide comes in. Wind blows it this way, wind blows it that way. There is no stability whatsoever. And that is true of you 
if your prayer life is not effective. Your life is riddled with instability. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's filled with skepticism, cynicism, distrust. He thinks the character of God is not honorable, that God has no integrity, that his promises he will not fulfill. That man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, verse 7 says. By the way, turn that around. Prayer is expecting to receive something from the Lord. That's what prayer is all about. When you pray as the Bible bids you to pray to a generous God who delights to give good gifts, verse 17, expect to receive them because that's who our God is. But if you doubt, you won't receive anything. Because you are double-minded, verse 8. By the way, many scholars believe that James coined this Greek word because they cannot find it in any other extant Greek literature. And it means double-souled. It means divided loyalties. See, it's not just so much that we have a little bit of doubt. It means that we are disloyal to God. We're not sure that he is trustworthy and we're more loyal to ourselves we're not sure we want to commit ourselves to God in prayer we're more aligned to our own agenda divided allegiance sometimes that's understandable I mean when Archie and Olivia Manning go to a professional football game against the Broncos and the Giants (laughs) if you know anything about football they have two sons who play professional football as quarterbacks Peyton Manning quarterbacks the Broncos, Eli the New York Giants. And one time those two teams played against each other and the parents, Archie and Olivia, came, one dressed in a Bronco jersey and one dressed in a Giants jersey. Maybe it was Indianapolis back in those days. But the point is, you know, the allegiance, divided allegiance, that's understandable, no big deal. The consequences of a football game, minor in the outcome. But we're talking about eternal consequences here. And if your loyalties are divided between you and God, so that when you pray, you're not so sure you want to commit yourself to God, that's part of this doubt, or you're not so sure that God is going to live up to his promise, your life is bereft, tragically bereft of power because you cannot pray. Skepticism. That's the first problem James addresses. The second one is chapter 4, and it is the problem of negligence. If the background of chapter 1 dealt with the trials that these believers were facing out in the world, now we're talking about fights within the church. Do churches ever have fights? Chapter 4, verse 1 What causes fights and quarrels among you? How come you guys can't get along? Don't those problems come from your inner desires, the desires that battle within you? You want something. You lust for it. You strongly, passionately desire it, but you don't get what you want. So you resort to human scheming. You kill and you covet. You say believers killing one another? Well, maybe... I'm not sure it's literal there, but I I think it maybe is what Jesus said, that if you have hatred in your heart for someone, it's like murder. You hate each other. 
And we could also escalate this, kind of, you know, apply it to the nations, that indeed the wars and the devastation and the atrocities of this world are because one nation desires something that they cannot achieve unless they use brute force. You kill and covet, but you do not have what you want, so you keep fighting and you keep quarreling, and maybe this is the reason why churches battle, and maybe this is the reason why you can't get along in your relationships, and maybe this is the reason why your marriage is at odds. It's all about selfishness and prayer. You neglect it. But he says in the end of verse 2, you don't have because you do not ask. Why aren't they asking? They don't believe God will answer. They forget. Don't you forget to pray? Hey, would you pray for me? I've got an appointment tomorrow with my doctor. I sure will. And then they call you in the evening and say, thanks for praying. And you say, I forgot. How often do you say you forgot? Right away you jump to, how did it go? So you don't have to say, I forgot. We become careless, inattentive. We have strong desires, certain things that we want, and there's nothing wrong with strong desires and wanting something. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray that way. Give us this day our daily bread. And we're not informing God of our needs. He already knows what we need, but he's ordained that the way we get our needs met is to pray. And if you don't pray, don't be surprised that you don't have. You have not because you ask not. We scheme instead of request. We have a human solution instead of following the divine program. A recent Christian leader was asked, what's the greatest sin of the 21st century church? And without pausing, he said, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is the greatest sin. I don't know if it is the greatest, but it's one of the, one of the worst. So prevalent. Samuel said, "How God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is sin. We have not because we ask not. Our lives are so poverty-stricken spiritually and we are in such need because we don't come to God with our burdens and cast every care upon him. The third reason is in verse three. It's the problem of selfishness. When you ask, so they've taken care of the problem of neglect, you do ask, but you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you would spend what you get on your pleasures. Instead of a trusting child asking a parent for something they need, you're like a spoiled child or a greedy child always wanting more and more and more when I've given you so much. Hmm. Remember when your kids were little? Remember that Christmas? Christmas tree was filled with presents. And they opened up that first one and they said, man, I don't want that. What else do we have? <laughs> and maybe they went through two or three presents like that and your anger, like the temperature gauge on a hot day, just got to the boiling point. How do you think God feels when we toss away all of his good gifts and say, yeah, that's, I don't want that. I want this. I want more. I want more. Selfishness. 
It comes down to this. There's only two ways to live, to gratify self or to glorify God. That's it. (laughs) Oh, there are degrees within those two camps, but that's it. You live to gratify self or to glorify God. And our prayers show which avenue we are traveling on. Your prayer life is like a mirror to your heart, to your soul. If you're only praying the gimme prayers, it's all about gratifying your own life. It's okay to pray for what you want and need. That's verse two. But make sure that your agenda is all about giving God the glory. And that you're not just seeking pleasure. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet seems to be underlying almost every one of the other abuses in the 10 words. We covet what we don't have, and so we kill to get it. We'll manipulate and lie. If pleasure is your policy, your life is gonna be filled with conflict. Verse one and two. If you live for pleasure, your life is gonna be filled with interpersonal difficulties. You'll leave a broken relationship everywhere you go. Maybe that's why your prayers aren't answered. They're all about you. They're selfish prayers instead of seeking to give the glory to God. William Barclay said a pleasure-dominated person whose prayer is for personal gratification, sends to God a prayer that he cannot answer. It is one of the grim facts of life that a selfish man can hardly ever pray properly. (laughs) Better lose our selfishness if we would gain the glory of God. There's another problem with prayer that you might have missed just reading through the book of James. I see it in chapter five, and it's the problem of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, verse four of chapter five. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. In other words, If I live an unrighteous life, if I take advantage of people, if I treat them like dirt, if I oppress people, if I walk over people, I will not have an effective prayer life. In fact, their prayers will reach the ears of the Almighty, and I'll be in big trouble. By the way, this is almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 24. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on those wages, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Listen to this from Proverbs 21. Whoever shuts his ear, his ears to the cry of the poor will cry himself and not be heard. Your prayers, short-circuited. The channel between you and God, broken, cut off. Interesting verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This is to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish them as a rich treasure. 
Count them as heirs with you together of the wonderful eternal life you have in Jesus Christ. And if you don't treat your wives with this type of respect, your prayers will be hindered. <laughs> Maybe that's why your prayers are working. Maybe it's skepticism. You don't believe God. Maybe it's neglect. You just don't pray like you should. Maybe it's selfishness. When you do pray, it's all about you. Maybe it's unrighteousness. Your life doesn't merit coming before God in prayer. Now, the merit of answered prayer is not my life, but I still have to be on praying ground. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, Psalm 66, 18. Sin short circuits our prayer life. Maybe the problem's with you. I have many people say, no, no, problem can't be with me. It must be with God, you know. Maybe he doesn't have enough uh, to bless me with. Maybe uh, he doesn't hear my prayers. Maybe he's not generous. Maybe he's stingy. No, all of that is debunked in the book of James. Maybe the problem's with you. I'll never forget, I got a call one time. A man wanted me to marry uh, him and his fiance, And I said, well, as I always do, I'd love to have a meeting with you to get to know you. I didn't know this person. And I said, uh, we require that you go through some counseling classes. He said, oh, I don't need that. I've been married three times before. It's <laughs> literally what he said to me. I said, well, perhaps you do need it. And we talked just for a few moments, and I tried to suggest ever so slightly that maybe the problem was him. He gave me the impression that he just married three really bad women, you know. This first one was this, and the second one was this, and the third one was this. And maybe the problem's with you. Ever thought of that? <laughs> Have you ever thought of this, that maybe prayer doesn't work in your life because of you? Just an idea. After studying what the Bible says about prayer, I'm convinced that's it. Now, James doesn't want to end on a negative note. So we get to chapter five, and he's going to, like the conclusion of his sermon, touch on all of these points again in a positive perspective. This is amazing. Look at chapter five, verse 13. Is any of you in trouble? And it's the word for general trials or suffering. You should pray. It's good to pray when you're in trouble. Not only when you're in trouble, but when you're in trouble, nothing wrong with crying out to God. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Your life should be filled with prayer and praise. Totally dependent, total dependence on God, that's prayer. Total gratitude to God, that's praise. Your life should be filled with prayer and praise. Covers it all, doesn't it? Verse 14, is anyone of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over you, and they will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will heal the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. So verse 13 was about personal prayer when you're in a difficulty, and then it deals with leadership prayer. Call on others to pray for you. You need people praying for you. And call in the, the leaders of the church 
and they'll anoint you with oil. This is a difficult portion to understand. It, it could mean simply that the oil has medicinal purposes. Galen, the great Greek physician, said oil was the best medicine. And it was used for many maladies, rubbing on open wounds and on sore muscles and all other kinds of things. It might have been medicinal. Could have been symbolic. Our prayer is like the Holy Spirit coming down to touch you and to heal you and the oil, which is symbolic of the Spirit we put on you. There's no healing in olive oil, no healing property in and of itself for spiritual difficulties. By the way, sometimes our sickness is because of sin, but not all sickness is because of sin. If sin is the underlying cause, then when you confess it, there'll be healing. If he sinned, his sin will be forgiven. The elders will say, is there any known sin that you need to confess? Maybe that's the under cause, underlying cause of the sickness. You confess your sin, they pray, and you're healed. Not only do you need people praying for you, you need to pray for others, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And then this amazing statement, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now notice, the problem of skepticism is dealt in verse 15. The prayer of faith, believe when you pray. The problem of negligence, he mentions prayer in every one of these verses, from verse 13 all the way down through verse 18. Pray, pray, pray. That's the problem of, of simply prayerlessness. The problem of greed Verse 16, pray for others. Let the agenda not be about you all the time, but be concerned about the needs of others. And then the problem of unrighteousness or injustice. Last part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. By the way, that doesn't mean perfect righteousness. That doesn't mean always doing what is right. It doesn't mean sinless. Does it? It can't mean that. Because the illustration that is given is of a sinner by the name of Elijah in verse 17 and 18. This is great. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Let me show you an illustration from the life of Elijah, who was a righteous man. Righteousness means you are sincerely following God. When you sin, you confess it. You get up again. The righteous person falls seven times, but gets up again. So a sincere person who's seeking to follow God, that's righteous living. And Elijah was a righteous man, but he was also a human man, verse 17. He's just like us. Had the same weaknesses. Did you know that? Elijah wasn't superhuman. Go back and read his biography in 1 Kings. It's comical almost at times. This great prophet who stood before King Ahab boldly and denounced that it wasn't going to rain. One time was whimpering. He was a whiner. Do you like to be around whiners? One time Elijah said, oh, I'm the only prophet that's left. Chapter 19, 1 Kings. It's just whining, you know. And God said, no, I've reserved, I've reserved 700 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and you know about them because you saw them in the caves. You heard about them from Obadiah. But he wanted to, you know, the martyr's complex. I'm the only one. And then once, 
After the prophets of Baal had been defeated on Mount Carmel, Queen Jezebel said, I'm going to do what Elijah, uh, do to Elijah what he's done to others. And may it happen to me if I don't take care of him by this time tomorrow. And Elijah goes running. And now he's filled with uh, depression. And he's whining to God again. He, he says at one point in chapter 19, I'm no better than my fathers. Whoever said you were? Well, some, at that point he got an inflated ego. And then he said, I might as well die. Well, he could have stayed back there and Jezebel would have done it for nothing. He didn't really want to die. He just wanted to whine about it. You know, that sounds a lot like us. Whiners, complainers. Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed. He prayed earnestly. He prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And by the way, that was according to the word of God, a promise that God had given to the Hebrews that if they followed him, he would bless them, and if they didn't follow, he'd hold back the rain. And he prayed again, and it rained. This proves the great statement of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. One of my favorite stories that illustrates that comes from Dwight Nelson, who tells this story that his pastor told him. Said this pastor looked out his front window at his home and noticed that a kitten was up in the tree. He went out, the kitten was too high for him to reach it, but the tree was too weak for him to climb it. So he came up with this brilliant idea tied a rope around the bumper of his car and the other end of the rope to the tree. Said, I'll just drive a little bit slowly and bend that small tree over until it's low enough where I can get the cat, get it down. Only a preacher could think of this. <laughs> he got out there, started driving slowly away. The tree begins to bend and the rope broke. And the tree went boing. <laughs> And the cat goes flying out over the fence through the air, kind of catapulted uh, <laughs> over the fence. Pastor was really upset. He went looking for the cat and couldn't find it, so he just kind of committed it to the Lord and thought that was the end of the scenario. Until he was in the store a couple days later, and he saw a lady who lived nearby him who attended his church, and he knew this lady hated cats, but she was buying cat food. And he said, what are you doing? I know you don't like cats. You're buying cat food. What are you doing? She said, Pastor, you won't believe this. <laughs> she said, my little daughter's been begging me for months to get a cat. And I said, no, no, I don't want a cat. I don't want a cat. She wore me out. I finally said, if God gives you a cat, you can have one. <laughs> she said, Pastor, you won't believe it. She went out in the backyard, got on her knees, began to pray for a cat. And a cat came flying in the air, <laughs> paws outstretched, landed right in front of her. And the pastor said, I believe it. <laughs> but could it be that the prayer of a little girl who believes in a big God is powerful and effective? Oh, what God delights to do for those who pray believing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you will give to us the perspective that James has on prayer.
to pray regularly, to pray in faith, to pray for your agenda and your will, and to pray from lives that seek to honor you and follow you, to pray at all times and to praise, giving gratitude and thanks to the one who will answer our every prayer and pray expecting an answer because the earnest prayer of a righteous person is both powerful and effective. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.